So I just want to say that in the course of my book, Marcel, who is a lion and never does anything that lions wouldn't do, is in the course of this book, sort of shrink, higher power, lover, dance partner, many things. But I don't think we need a lion to change our lives. I think we all have the imagination to change our lives. But I do think we sometimes have to get in the cage with the lion. And sometimes we need to roar. That was iconic author, playwright, and screenwriter Delilah Efron offering her insights about how to find the courage and imagination we need to take a different path in life. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. This session, Life at a Crossroads, Choosing a Different Path, blends humor and real-life advice to help you make hard choices and, as the saying goes, turn lemons into lemonade. Through her own entertaining journey, Delilah Efron will share how to know what to run from, what is just part of life, and how to choose the path that's right for you. Let's get started so you can meet our panelists. My God, thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. I was told that if I was in Boston, I needed to use the word wicked. <laughs> and I haven't figured out. Someone said you have to say wicked smart to someone or say, I don't know, but they did it in this kind of a weird Boston way that I didn't quite get. But anyway, okay, I'm saying the word wicked. So I hope that that really is meaningful. Also, I want to say I'm wearing boots. And the reason I'm wearing boots is that I've given up talk therapy. I've given up ever going to a shrink anymore because I'd be in a nursing home by the time I worked the problem out. And now Nora and I did a, my sister Nora and I, whom you all know, did a play called Love Loss and What I Wore. And it was about women's stories told through the clothing they wore. And when we asked our girlfriends to write their stories to us, tales of boots poured in. It turned out it was the most powerful item of clothing that a woman could have. It can do bravery, courage, grounded, sexy. I mean, there's nothing that can do more for you than a boot. So I'm just pass that on, really. Also, I was on the way up on the train and I was reading an article in either New York Magazine or The New Yorker, I don't remember which, about this woman who wrote all about whether you can have it all or you can't have it all and having to give up one job for what seemed to me an equally good job. But I really hate this thing. It gets me into a total rage because I really think that anyone who defines having it all as marriage, children, and career is having it all is different for every woman. What you want is different. It isn't that we all want the same things. I mean, our job in life is to figure out what it is we want, not what it is we think we should want or someone else wants. And I think having it all happens at moments in your life where what you want and what you have match up because having it all, what we want changes through our whole lives. So, I mean, I remember when I was living single in New York and it was, and trying to be a writer, I had it all. I had everything I wanted at that moment. So I just think it's very important not to ever get into a box about things or think you need to think about something in a way because other people do. And there's a woman, one of my three heroines in my novel, the line is in, looks in the mirror and says, who I am is not a life sentence. And 
it's an adventure story, really. It's sort of about, my editor calls it Thelma and Louise Cross with Born Free. But inside this adventure story, there's real questions of what you can run from, what you can't, how you change your life. And this particular woman has this moment when she realizes that. And I want to talk to you about the times in my life when I've had to make detours and changes and what that's meant to me. And then a little more about the book. I grew up in a family. I had a very powerful mother, actually. She was a screenwriter in California. She wrote with my father and they were a team. And they wrote movies like uh, Desk Sad and Daddy Long Legs and No Business Like Show Business, things you might see on the TN, whatever that station is, late at night. But she was a working woman and there were no other working women where we lived. She was the only one who worked and she was so proud of it. That was all she ever, I mean, she really talked about that endlessly. You know, I'm a career woman. I'm a working woman. You girls will grow up and you will have careers. And it was just unheard of to talk to your daughters like that. And she also thought that we had to be nonconformists. So she had a million ideas about this and what this meant. And I'm going to tell you some of them. One of them was don't worship celebrities. They're no better than you are. And she said we were never allowed to join social clubs or sororities because she didn't like the idea of excluding women versus including women. She didn't think that was a nice thing to do. She said don't clean your plate, which by the way at that time was just unbelievable. Nobody ever said that. She also said never buy on sale. (laughs) It's made no sense at all, right? She said elope. And then this is my favorite. Just because you're related to someone is no reason to like them. <laughs> all right. The thing is, even though she had all these rules about nonconformity, the idea was that we all had to conform to her nonconformity, all four of us. And we were all really not meant to just be launched into the world. We were all expected to be writers. And that was almost the only thing rewarded at the family. I mean, at dinner tables. We all told stories and played charades and 20 questions. And my mother was very exacting about language. If you ever made a grammatical mistake, she would just correct you instantly. And she picked our courses for us. I mean, we were very headstrong girls and we just marched to her tune. It's quite amazing. I still do. I mean, she never believed in manicures. And last week I got my first manicure. I don't mean to manicure, but I mean with color. You know, I've gotten manicures, but I I thought, my God. And then my hands didn't look like mine the whole day. So I took it off. But my mother, you know, our mothers, they get into our heads. But what was great about this whole thing about being counter to the culture was that it made you say to yourself in your life, does this make sense? What everyone else is doing, does it make sense? Is it the right thing to do? It's very important for a writer to try and always know what they think, although we all know that's unattainable. But the idea that we were raised with the idea that whatever was the norm wasn't necessarily the way to go was just a great grounding. But you would think that having this mother and this destiny and a father who shouted, every time I said something funny, he would shout, that's a great line, write it down. You would think I just would go off and become a writer, but I did not. I married the first man who asked me, and I moved to Rhode Island, to Providence, Rhode Island. And he was a professor, and I was just floating around there in my 20s. The 20s are rough. You're out of college, and you don't know what in the world you're doing or meant to do. So I just got married. It seemed like a solution. And I got this job 
I was this thing called a Girl Friday, which is basically an assistant in a design firm and had this really mean boss. I think maybe having a mean boss is a rite of passage, but I'm not sure. But I had this really mean boss and he was never really mean to me. And I didn't realize that eventually a mean boss is mean to everyone. So one day he started picking on my work and ragging on me and just went on for a while. And I stood up and I said, I quit. And as I walked out the door, he shouted, you're flat chested. (laughs) I swear. Okay. It's one of my favorite stories. It's one of my favorite things that ever happened to me. You know how your greatest humiliations become your best tale. So anyway, so now I'm unemployed and flat chested. (laughs) So what in the world am I going to do? So I decide to go into the crocheting business, right? I start crocheting purses and belts with my girlfriend, Lori, for New York department stores. We actually sell to some stores and we are just crocheting our brains out. And one day I'm in New York and I have to tell you, New York has always been like one of the true loves of my life. And I fell in love with it when I moved there from California and I always missed it not living there. So I was trying to go as much as I could because I felt most myself there. I always think there's a place you live that somehow feels right. And it's always important to find that place or to get back to that place if you can. And I was there and I was at a cocktail party and there was an editor there from Simon & Schuster. So, okay, this is the most pathetic thing. I don't want anyone here to ever do this, all right? So I walked up to him and I said, I know you'd never be interested in this, but would you like a book about crocheting? And he said, yes. And I, to this day, do not know why, but it was just an amazing thing. But never present yourself that way. And I got this contract to write a book about crocheting, which was just like writing directions, right? So I'm working on this. And now I'm kind of admitting to myself that I'm about 29 now. And you know, I think 29 is an important year or the late 20s because You can mess around for a while, but at some point, life just kind of gets serious to you and you suddenly think, oh, I've only got one of these lives. What am I going to do with it? It suddenly seems like there's a it's a finite thing. There's a finite quality to the life you have and you'd better figure it out. And I was just at that point of feeling that and I was admitting that, yes, I might want to be a writer. And it was very hard to admit this because My parents were writers, even though I'd been trained for it. My parents were writers and my sister Nora was already enormously successful in New York. So I said to him, I think I want to be a writer. And it was hard to just say it out loud. I should say this is my first husband, not my second. Okay. Okay. I said to my first husband, I want to be a writer. And he said, I don't want you to be a writer. And I said, why? And he said, I don't want you to become famous. Suppose you become famous. So I said, I promise I won't be famous. (laughs) So obviously I had to leave him. But here's the thing about this, because I think it's really important. I mean, of course, now it seems, of course, I was going to be a writer because I wrote books and then I've done other things. I've had a career as a writer. But at the time, I was terrified. I mean, To have somebody say that, and there's nothing worse than living with someone who is squashing your dreams. If you are not living, you know, everyone makes so much fuss about marriages or even friendships with girlfriends. 
where you're not being supported in your dreams. I mean, they make a fuss about things like being beaten is such a big deal or something like that, which God knows it is. But it is a big deal if someone isn't on your side, whether it's your mate or your friends, they've got to be rooting for you. And I was terrified and I had to leave this secure place and go off and become this writer that I was really scared to do it. It's sort of like burning the bridge you're standing on. And you have to do it because nothing's going to happen if you don't do it. So I went to New York and we had sold our house and made a small profit and we split it in half. And he said, you know, in two years, I'm going to have all this money and you won't have yours. And he was absolutely right about that. But I decided because I'm not good at the stock market. And in fact, the stock market never was even in my vocabulary in my 20s. But I just thought I'm going to invest in myself. I'll either be a writer in two years or I'll have to figure out another life. And I figured out if I was causing this much trouble, I'm being very specific because I think it's really important to understand that you don't just leap and do these things. I knew that if I did this, I had to have a plan. And I knew that in New York at that time, if you wanted to become successful, you needed to be published actually not in women's magazines, but in the New York Times, perhaps in New York, or places where editors who gave out book contracts read you. So I sort of thought I have to get into the New York Times within two years was the idea of it. I have to be in places that get read. So almost two years in, and I am down to like $300, which would have been 500, but I fell in love with an orange coat. About two years in, I was sitting at home eating chocolate pudding. And it was that kind you cook where it has a skin on the top. And I made a little hole in the top of the skin and I was scooping the pudding out from underneath and saving the skin for last. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, I'm eating like a child. So I wrote 500 words about how children eat food. It was called How to Eat Like a Child. And it was things like the Malamar where you peel the chocolate off the top and then you eat the graham cracker bottom and then you like you leave the marshmallow between the cushions of the couch or something. It's like that. And I gave it to a friend of mine who was an illustrator named Edward Corrin, who was a New Yorker cartoonist. And he gave it to the New York Times for me. And they published it on the last page of the Sunday magazine. And overnight, I was a writer. It was a miracle. It was like one of those dreams come true. It really was. And I not only was offered a book contract, but now I got an agent. I mean, everything that you dreamed of happening happened to me. And I wrote this book. In fact, the New York Times said that nobody got more mail than me, except for me, except about Israel. So in any event, this thing that I dreamed of was taking place. And when I wrote it, it became a bestseller. And I really did not have to worry about making a living again, which was fantastic. I continued to get work. But I also say this, it was not easy. I got the contract. I found the craziest guy in the world to get involved with. So I couldn't even think. And then, of course, I did have a shrink then, which will come as no surprise to you. And the shrink told me how to get rid of the guy, which if anyone wants to know after, I'll tell you. And he said to me, you have to have work habits. He said, you really do. And work habits are incredibly important, especially if you work at home. And if you're a writer, they're critical. So he said, you have to sit down at your desk at 10. You can't get up till 12. You don't have to work but you can't 
make tea. You can't call a friend. You can't now email. You can't do any of that. You can only be there with your, then it was a typewriter, but with your computer. And then you can break from 12 to two. And then from two to four, you do the same thing. And you know, I did that and it really worked. It took, will I write today? Will I work today? It took that question out of my life because that's what I did every day. And it became a habit and it became something I loved. So every time something good happens, it's very easy to sabotage yourself into something. There's a way to take it away from yourself. We're very gifted at this. And you have to constantly remember that you may have to regroup in order to remain focused and driven. And I have to say of all the traits I The times I've been angriest at myself in my career is when I've abandoned work or have believed that somebody else was right about it. I mean, there's a point sometimes where so many people tell you that it's not working or something, but really being driven, believing in yourself, not looking outside for someone to validate you, but understanding work that you do takes arrogance. It takes ego. You've got to have it. You've got to find it and milk it, really. You also, I always think you have to really listen to your heart. And I've really made a career never about looking outside for what's popular, but looking inside to what I feel is true for me. Because if you do what you can do, you don't have to worry that someone else is doing it. And this particular story, this novel that I wrote, which is really about three women at a crossroads and about sisterhood, explores I think all of these themes I'm talking about in a more intense way. And the weird thing was, I was really stressed about things going on in my life. And I thought, God, I'm never going to be able to sleep. And I'm not someone that Valium really is very effective with. I mean, it works, but it works too well. So I went to sleep and I had this dream. And it was about three women in a bar in North Carolina. Now, I'd never been to North Carolina in my life, all right? Two of them were in their late 20s and one was in her 50s. And I knew they were all on the run. And I knew that none of them knew why the other was running. And there was a lion in this bar, by the way. And I have a dog. And I have to say, I got a dog when I became a stepmother. And any stepmothers here, get yourself a dog because uh, it's very important to have someone in the house that loves you. (laughs) So... I've always had a very special feeling for dogs and I transferred an enormous amount of my love for this dog onto this lion. But I know I needed a lion in my life and that's why I dreamed him. I need somebody. I needed the peace, the strength, the power of a lion and these women needed it too. And anyway, I wrote this story without researching it, which is never the way to go. You always have to start with the research. But I knew this story. It was just in my gut. It was obviously, it came from a dream. It was subconscious. And one of the things that goes on in this story is that all these characters come from places in my life. And Rita, the older woman who says, who I am is not a life sentence, is running from a life that I ran from, which is where your imagination is simply squashed. And she has to really move forward and have the bravery to rediscover that. And Lana, who is one of the younger women, is struggling to stay sober. This is really, for me, an important theme because I think all of our lives, one way or another, if our children, our mates, our friends, or someone we know, the children of our friends, have been affected in some way by addiction at this point in our lives. And in my life, 
I'm telling you this because I always think people romanticize other people's lives and that's never a good thing to do. But when I was 11, my amazing mother became an alcoholic and she became a dedicated alcoholic. I mean, she died ultimately of cirrhosis. Nothing was going to stop her from drinking. And my life went from being extremely sunny to being very dark. The strange thing is, I don't think everything that happens in life is a gift. I think some things aren't gifts at all. And I don't ever like it when people say things happen for a reason or anything like that. But sometimes you can find a reason in something. And sometimes. And because I had this before and after, when I became a writer, I was able to use what I understood about pain and what I understood about laughter, because I was always a funny kid, and merge them in my storytelling. And so I was able to find a way to use this thing that happened that changed my life. So an enormous amount of what I understood about that and the struggle of friends of mine to be sober, and yet they're still stuck with the same personality they had when they weren't, when they were drunk, which is a need for drama, for trouble, guilt, shame, all these things. I mean, one of my characters is really struggling. How, what does she have to make peace with in order to move forward? And how does the friendship of this sisterhood fit into that? And I believe in sisterhood, not only because of one of four, but because there's this great quote by Madeleine Albright, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. And I completely believe that is the truest thing ever. Anyway, the very weird thing about this book, which got me through a very difficult time in my life, because writers have this lucky thing where they can create an alternate universe to live in. An enormous amount of this book is very funny. So he's very happy often writing this book and many times blissfully happy. But I didn't go to North Carolina. And then my girlfriends are saying, you've got to go to North Carolina. So I go down there after I've written two drafts. And there is this moment in the book where Rita wants the lion to have a tree. He lives in the bar. He doesn't have a tree. And she passes an empty field. And there in the field is a tree that looks like it's been struck by lightning. It's like a, it's more a sculpture than a tree. It's just big trunk and some bare branches. And she convinces some guys to dig the tree up and take it back to the bar where Marcel lives. Marcel is the name of the lion. So I'm driving in North Carolina and every morning I would just put into the GPS, I'd pick a random destination and say, take back roads. And I'm driving down a country road and there in an empty field is the tree. So I'm just like stunned out of my wits. And I stop the car and I get out and I'm looking at this tree and a guy drives by and he stops his pickup truck and he says, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm just looking at this tree. And he said, oh yeah, it's an oak tree. It's my friend's tree. And I'd said it was oak in my book, even though I was in pine country. And in my story, Marcel doesn't know what to do with the tree. So he just rubs himself against it. And he says to me, the goats over there come over and rub themselves against the tree and the bark's rubbed off. And I just thought, God, this is too weird. I don't even know what to say. I'm not a very religious person to say the least. And I was terrified. I was having a religious experience. (laughs) 
So I wanted to get into a house where Clayton, who owns the bar, lived. I mean, I wanted to know what someone's house looked like there in that neighborhood because I needed to write his house and I hadn't felt I'd done a good job so far. And I answered the an ad on the wall of a Mexican restaurant. A woman was selling bread out of her home. And Clayton in my story has the bar, he has the lion, and he has a vintage Chevy Bel Air convertible that he loves. And I go to the house and I go in and I buy some cinnamon buns and I'm chatting with the woman and her husband comes home and I'm chatting with her husband. And when I leave, he's driving a vintage Chevy Bel Air convertible, exactly as I described it, with an orange interior and the chrome polished and just, I don't even know why I'm telling you this, except I I really, it's such an insane thing. But I do think that there's some way that we tell ourselves, if we listen to ourselves, if we hear ourselves, we know the directions we need to go. We know whether we have mystical experiences or not. We know what we need and what we want. And if we don't know, we need to talk to people who help us get there, whom we really trust and who are most interested in our own getting there too. So I just want to say that In the course of my book, Marcel, who is a lion and never does anything that lions wouldn't do, is in the course of this book, sort of shrink, higher power, lover, dance partner, many things. But I don't think we need a lion to change our lives. I think we all have the imagination to change our lives. But I do think we sometimes have to get in the cage with the lion. And sometimes we need to roar. And that is what I want to leave you with today. I am happy to answer all questions that you might have about anything. As you can tell, I'm not big into secrets. I actually think secrets are ridiculous, especially the one I'm pregnant, don't tell anyone. But in general, I think knowing other people's lives and what other people's lives are like help us live our own lives. And that's one of the things that we're on the earth to do is share. So anyway, any questions? Hi. So I feel like I'm kind of at one of those crossroads points and I've kind of had like a normal sort of traditional career trajectory up to this point. And I think my husband's starting to get, he's very supportive. He's starting to get a little nervous. I'm like, got into photography in the last year and I've realized like growing up a lot of, I was told I wasn't a good, I wasn't good at art, whatever that means. And now I'm really finding that creativity and creative expression is what I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. And I think people will support me. I think my husband will support me, but it's making him a little nervous because he sees me kind of get in the clouds and things sometimes. So do you have any advice? That's an interesting problem there because I've got it too. I mean, when you're really cooking on something that's really your loving doing at work or creative, whatever you're doing at work, it can make you so happy that you're living in that world all the time. Is that what you're talking about? A little bit. I think he just is like... I'm distracted a lot myself. My husband has to live with it. And that's his problem. He's an engineer. Yeah, okay. I'm not (laughs) suggesting anything except that I think sometimes when we're anxious and let's say you're nervous, is this going to work? Isn't it going to work? And he's not totally on board. You let him express your anxieties for you. I mean, that could be going on. I'm just guessing. But I think the thing is, is that you need to worry about yourself, not him. You just need to worry about what you need to do and how you can do it. And maybe it will make him happy all the time. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's not going to make you happy all the time. But you just have to think about yourself. Thank you. In this case. And I am standing up. Yes. (laughs) I I am vertically challenged. (laughs) I've been at that crossroads for 25 years. I was a college professor. Uh Uh-huh. 
And I just couldn't take it anymore. It's a very stressful job. And I'm now a cemetery conservator. I'm the person that goes into the graveyards and repairs the gravestones. I taught television and film and script writing. I mean, it's 180 degrees. And it's been a very rewarding career. Uh huh. But the challenge I'm facing now is my husband's death, which was just a few months ago. Oh, my goodness. And I'm so sorry. Thank you. Getting through that is tough because he was so supportive. Do you have any? Oh, my God. I don't know that journey. I certainly have been experiencing enormous loss this year. And one of the things I know about it is it's very personal. And nobody really knows what you're experiencing or what you're going through or when it's painful. And it's a sense of isolation that I've felt. So I could just share that with you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Really sorry. Thank you. Hi. My question is, I know that I'm a writer, but I spent a lot of years running away from writing Mm because I felt like I was supposed to do something more important. But that's what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I wrote one screenplay, have some other ideas. But how do you unleash the fear and embrace the creativity? How do you do that? Well, I talked about discipline. I'm telling you that part of writing is just work habits. It's just hard work. You just have to be willing to be alone and you have to be willing to do it every day. I don't mean every day, five days a week, okay? You need to do it and nobody's going to do it for you. And I've heard people say this thing, but I think it's true that often you have someone judging you. Someone you know, it can be your mother, your father, your friend, your some professor, I don't know. I've met a lot of professors and they do make me nervous about that. So you get rid of that person. Don't judge your work when you're working. Just do it every day. And you don't need to produce that much. You just need to do it every day. That's all I can tell you. It's about doing it. Screenwriting, by the way, if you're going to be a screenwriter, move to California. I mean, it's not something you can just start doing here and think you can have a screenwriting career. That's a place where everyone goes to do it. It's a whole world. Unto itself. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. She said a lot of what I wanted to say as a writer, but I was told by Charles Lint to just keep writing, even if I wasn't published. And I started getting a following on Facebook, believe it or not, called Notes from the Train. So now I have all these people following me and saying, when's the book coming out? And I just started writing my first book. So I jumped into the, okay, I'm stepping into my power a bit, feeling vulnerable, listen to Dr. Brown. Here I am with my voice shaking. So this is what you do with fear. You hold courage and fear next to each other and you support each other as women. And I started my first red tent, which is a woman's community so that we can support each other. So here I am stepping into my fear and getting my support. But as a writer with your first book, what do you do next? Like, do you self-publish? How well, do you find I would start by self-publishing you are in a women's group. Is that what you're saying? A well, women's group that's supportive? I just started a red tent with the red tent movement in Concord, Mass. Oh, okay. So All I right. stepped into a leadership role well, as I, well. I think that's great because, I mean, I depend on my girlfriends. A lot of them are writers and my husband's a writer. And Mine too. Yeah. I read their work and support them. But no, I mean, there are actually books on this. I'm not totally up on it, but you need to write query letters, find books which are in some way in the ballpark of your book. All right. Look in the acknowledgments. They always acknowledge their editors and they always acknowledge their agents. Well, this is kind of write a cover note about what your book is, enclose five pages of it, the first five, and ask if they're 
with an envelope, I'm sure, and ask if they're interested. Ask if they would like to see more. Okay. That's the process. Great. Thank you. Okay. There's a great group in Boston, uh, Grub Street Writers or GrubStreet.org. They could probably help a lot of people with that too. But Oh, yeah. I just had a question. We all have sisters. Can you talk about some of the gifts that you and your sister gave each other personally and professionally? How you pay that forward now, uh, you know, in tribute to her? Well, of course, this is one way I pay it forward. I love to help women. That's one of the things. But I have sisterhood with all my girlfriends as well as with my sisters. And sometimes... You can get what you want from your sister. And as we all know, sometimes you can't get what you want from your sisters or complicated relationships, not as easy as friendship can be. And yet they prepare you in a great way for friendship, I think. So, I mean, I had a very special relationship with my sister because we collaborators and we were so similar. But all sisters aren't similar. I just think that the worst thing women can do is be competitive with each other. But for some reason, we live in a society where women are competitive. I mean, just why I was talking about marriage, children, career. It's just a way for the rest of us who don't have children. Like, I don't have kids. So am I supposed to feel bad about myself because I have stepchildren? No, my life is great. I think it's so important to support the different ways we want to be original. That's what I think is important. And that you're sisters with every woman that you meet. And don't forget it. Thank you. Hi, I'm an attorney, but I need for a screenplay. <laughs> but I can't quit my day job <laughs> at this point. And then so I'm just kind of taking random notes as I kind of live my life for my characters. But I've never written a screenplay, so should I read a book first or take a class first? So I would take a class. Take a class. If you want to write a screenplay, there are a lot of rules for screenwriting, and before you break them, you need to know them. Okay. So yeah, I would take it, but I would make sure you're taking it from someone who knows how to write a screenplay. Okay. I mean, look at what they've written and what they've done in their lives to make sure that. Or any particular books that are. I have not read any books on screenwriting. I was very blessed. My husband taught me to write a screenplay. And then my sister Nora taught me the rest of it. And I was just really lucky in that. But it's a form. And I have a lot of friends who are young screenwriters who I've mentored over the years. And you've got to take classes in it. You do. You absolutely do. Okay. Thank you. I love that your dad said, shouted, write it down. That was funny. I just wanted to say that two years ago, I broke my neck in yoga. And it was debilitating beyond belief. And I was in a geriatric chair for what felt like eternity with well-meaning friends bringing me casseroles and hence the body I live in now. However, you got me off the couch. I'm a performer and I live on beautiful Cape Cod and Woods Hole Theater Company did Love, Loss and What I Wore. And I thought, well, I better get off the couch, get out of my space and go try out. And I won the role of Rosie and I love the purse. And I just want to say I am now a groupie of yours. Oh, that's the only reason I'm here. So sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. But I just have a question more about some advice that you might give because my son is 15 and he's I think he's hysterical. He's very creative, but he is overwhelmingly concerned about what he's going to do for his job. And the last thing I want for him is to be stuck in an office. (laughs) So is there anything that any advice you might share to those of us in the room that want to encourage children to be strong and be confident in their talents and how they can be creative as a, if they do what they love, the money will follow kind of thing, as opposed to being so structured? Well, I, of course, think children 
follow the unspoken messages as much as the spoken ones. So it's tricky to be a parent, isn't it? I mean, and I don't think any of us have the same parents because we're all born into the family at a different time and we relate to our parents. And now I think parents, I mean, it always seems to me that parents think they can lay more glove on their children than they actually can. I mean, that's what it always seems like to me. If you want him to explore that, I mean, I would send him to a performing arts camp. That's the thing that I think might be a wonderful thing for him. He's 15. It's perfect time for him to be exposed to theater. Theater is so alive and so much fun. So it's not just the team of everybody working together, but then there's the performance and there's building the sets. And I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. And he can find his way with other kids who are also interested in that kind of thing. So that's my suggestion to you. Thank you. I hope it's helpful. Hi. So I'm in my early 20s and I currently feel like I'm kind of going through a quarter life crisis. And I enjoy my job. I enjoy what I do. But there's times when I don't feel fulfilled. And I was just wondering if you had advice on how to maybe find what my next step should be in life and how to go about that. Do you have any idea what it is? No, no idea. (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) There's only one person that knows. Or can know, and it's you. But any advice? I don't find your passion, or well, I of course the obvious thing is to know what your passions are. There's different ways to express whatever your passion is too. But I mean, an ideal life involves the things you're passionate about, whether it's statistics or creme brulee or writing. Or in an ideal world, what we love should be what we do. I mean, my husband loves teaching. I mean, he's a writer, but he also loves teaching, so he. He found his way back to that after he stopped being a screenwriter. But I mean, you have to figure out what it is, what your gifts are and what your passion is. And you're the only one. But we probably should be patient unless you're going broke, in which case you can't be. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being here. This has been extremely entertaining and more importantly, motivating. Thank you. Uh, motivational. I have a quick question. I'm sure it's on lots of our minds. Love to hear the story and the advice your shrink gave you. Oh, oh, yes. All right. <laughs> if you've got a crazy one. boyfriend, all right. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you have to know that you want to get rid of them. All right. I mean, you know that thing about, oh my God, he sent me a text. I have to send him back one right now to tell him not to text me anymore. That is not wanting to get rid of a boyfriend. All right. That's wanting to still be involved with a boyfriend. But if you really want to get rid of someone who's crazy and I needed to, you don't feed them in any way. So, of course, there was no caller ID then. But if the phone rang and I picked it up and I heard his voice, I was told just to hang it up. Don't say don't call me. Anything is engagement. So that's I literally never, ever engaged in any conversation in any way at all with him. And he never got rewarded in any way. So he went away. Thank God. Hi. Like a lot of practical people, I have my regular day job and save my creative activities for nighttime. I like to write short stories and plays and draw. And I sometimes feel like I have a million ideas floating around in my head and they're all kind of colliding and drive me crazy. And I wonder if you ever feel that kind of mental chaos and how do you parse things down and keep track of everything and prioritize what you want to work on? Yeah, I find with an idea, that's a problem. I mean, I think that's a real problem. What should you be working on? What shouldn't you be working on? I find that some ideas stick and some don't. Some ideas come to me in a day and then they're gone in another day or in a week or something. But if something keeps nagging at me, I think 
that's it. And then, but what I don't do is once I commit to something, I don't then jump to another thing. I try to stay on the thing because that's the need not to do it. You've got to sort of be in touch with whether your brain is telling you that you're on the wrong thing and you need to get out of it, or if it's just trying to trick you into not doing what you should be. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor to be here. You just heard from iconic author, playwright, and screenwriter Delilah Efron on tackling transitions when you find yourself at a crossroads. To learn more about her work, please visit DelilahEfronWriter.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women.